Hello and welcome back to Today I Learned Climate. I'm your host, Lar Hesse Fisher. In our last episode, we went in a whirlwind tour of our global food system and how it both affects and is affected by climate change. We talked about uh, changes in our growing season and extreme weather and fertilizers and, well, you should just go listen to the episode. We learned a lot. The one thing we didn't have a lot of time to talk about, though, was, well, food. Yeah, the stuff that actually makes it to our plates. And our guest for that episode was Dr. Cynthia Rosenzweig, who leads the Climate Impacts Group at NASA with a specialty on climate change and agriculture. And she has a lot to say about food. When we think about climate change and food, it brings climate change right into our kitchens and dining rooms. It's very close to us as people. These connections are strong and personal. Food is culture. Food is history. Deeply, deeply ingrained and embedded in families and cultures, religions. So we're bringing Dr. Rosenzweig back to tell us just a little more about the connections between the food we eat and climate change. Let's start with some of the stories that you may have heard about on the news. What if I told you the world is facing a global chocolate shortage? Scientists blame climate change, disease, and a lack of water for a shortage in some of the biggest producing countries like Africa's Ivory Coast. On the East Coast, it's clams. Climate change has devastated the shellfish industry in, in Maine. Okay, so we've all heard about the impact of climate change on the world. But what you may not know, it's also having a big effect on traditional industries like winemaking, affecting everything from where it's made to how it tastes. That was a local ABC station in Los Angeles, NBC News, and CBS. But these statements leave a lot of open questions. Like, why is climate change going to affect certain foods? And why these foods in particular? To understand what's going on, let's look at a couple of examples. There will be some challenges. You know, avocado, I love avocados. So that one is a bit of a challenge. Avocado is a good example of a food that can use a lot of resources. Avocado trees are largely grown in big plantations, which are really thirsty. They require a lot of water and they also take up a lot of space. In major avocado growing regions like parts of Mexico and Chile, these plantations are actually depleting local water sources and contributing to deforestation as they expand. Plus, like many foods, avocados are eaten all over the world, but they're mostly grown in one area, in this case, Latin America. Which means if you're eating avocados in most of the US or Europe, a lot of energy was used to ship them to you. And to keep them from getting ruined on these voyages, they're kept refrigerated which takes even more energy. This all adds up to a food that, well, just takes a lot of resources. Now, this doesn't mean that these foods are gonna go extinct, but these trends definitely make certain foods harder to cultivate. And then there are plants that are very sensitive to a changing environment, like coffee trees. Coffee is derived from the seeds of coffee cherries, which grow on trees in tropical forests that get plenty of rainfall. Scientists expect climate change to make many of these areas warmer and expose them to more frequent and prolonged drought, which is really hard on coffee crops. And we're seeing hints of this already today 
In southern Brazil, which is one of the biggest coffee-growing regions in the entire world, the past two years have seen the worst drought in almost a century. And many coffee growers are losing their crops or rapidly switching to different, cheaper varieties that can better withstand the heat. Now, this doesn't mean that these foods are going to go extinct, but these trends definitely make certain foods harder to cultivate. And that could lead to higher prices or farmers switching to different, hardier varieties. Okay, so those are two examples, but there's good reason to think beyond specific foods. Climate change is affecting food availability already through extreme events, which are increasing. So things such as heat waves, heavy downpours, droughts in some regions, and floods in others. I think we got a taste of this at the beginning of COVID, when the supply chains were disrupted and people were not able to get all the food that they were ordering. We were so used to having anything we want. And there was a time, it was short, and the supply chains adjusted. But, but that feeling of, okay, you open the cupboard and eat from the cupboard. So what's in the cupboard? It's the legumes, it's the beans, right? It's things that are less perishable. Because if we have supply chain disruptions, we will need to, I think, be more careful to make sure that we have food in our cupboards all the time. When COVID broke out in early 2020, I stocked up on canned food, you know, soups, beans, stuff like that, just in case. And we do that when there's a big storm coming, too. So as weather gets more intense and as our food systems adjust to this and to changing temperatures, we might find ourselves preparing in this way more often. But for the second half of this episode, I want to return back to the present. What's on our plates today? And what did those food choices have to do with climate change? Let's start at the beginning. If less food is wasted, then we don't have to grow as much food. If we're wasting about 10% of all of our food, that's just all these greenhouse gas emissions that are going up. And in the U.S., we're wasting a good deal more than that. According to the USDA, more than 30% of the food that makes it to our store shelves never gets eaten. Some of that is thrown out by the stores because it's past its expiration date or because it's not pretty enough to sell or other reasons. And some of it is thrown out at home. By cutting down on that food waste, we can also cut down on the land and water and energy that goes into producing it. And some decisions about what people eat can also affect the food system that we're a part of. I want to be very, very clear that I am not advocating anybody to change their diet. It's really just to begin to think about it. But I think we should engage with climate and food conversations, since what we choose to eat has a big effect, both on our personal health and planetary health. And this is in part because some foods emit a lot more greenhouse gases than others, in particular beef. Let's take a minute and look at beef in some more detail because it does get a lot of hype and it is one of the foods that creates the most greenhouse gas emissions. Though 
As someone who enjoys a hamburger from time to time, I don't want you to think that this is a lecture about your diet. Okay, so the first thing here is the amount of land that cattle need. We learned last episode that the biggest source of greenhouse gases in our food system comes from cutting down forests to make room for farms and pasture land. In fact, the biggest reason that the Amazon rainforest is being cut down today is to make more pasture land for cattle. And we also need a lot of energy and water and land to grow food for the cattle, like soy and hay. In general, cattle require a lot of land. To illustrate this, I have a little pop quiz for you. So according to the USDA, what percentage of all the land in mainland US is used in some way for raising animals for us to eat? Make a guess, even to yourself. Okay, you ready for the answer? I was shocked to learn that it's over 40%. More than 40% of all of the land here in the lower 48 states is used for livestock. Now, some argue that this is land that could be used for other purposes, like growing plants for humans to eat directly, or for restoring the land back to ecosystems that actually store carbon dioxide, like prairies or forests. And there's another thing going on here with cows. Because of the methane that cows emit, but also through the manure as well, they are big, big greenhouse gas producers. Yeah, cattle and some other animals like sheep and goats produce a lot of the greenhouse gas methane, which is even more powerful than carbon dioxide. It's to do with the way that these cattle's digestive systems work. So it's really hard to digest grass and hay, so they ferment it in their stomachs, creating methane that they burp out. So as weird as it may sound, this actually is a big deal. The EPA estimates that more than a quarter of all the methane that humans are adding to the atmosphere comes from our livestock burping. And it's not just beef. Like, rice fields leave a lot of standing water where oxygen can't get into the soil, and that creates good growing conditions for bacteria, and that also releases methane. But so why are we talking about all this again? Right, right. Food choices. So... As we think about our diet choices, there are ways to reduce the causes of climate change. If people eat different food, that then feeds back on what will be produced. And that's where you get the actual reduction in greenhouse gases, for example, from less beef production. This is why you might have heard about people choosing to eat more plants and less meat for the environment. We actually learned while making this episode that our whole team at TIO Climate is either vegetarian or just occasional meat eaters. It's not really something we had talked about before, but kind of like buying green electricity for our homes. It's a choice that we're making to start nudging these bigger systems, like the ones that give us our food and our energy, to produce those things in a way that doesn't add to our climate change problem. Of course, it's possible to get really into the weeds on food and climate, you know, comparing this meat to that meat and this vegetable to that one, or digging into exactly where and how your food is grown. But really, if you are interested in the environmental impacts of your own diet, Dr. Rosenzweig has some advice for some pretty simple rules that you could follow. Just encourage healthy and sustainable 
plant-rich diets, especially in developed countries. We always have to say that because it's just so incredibly different in many, many countries and food insecure places. So for those who have choices, more plant-based diets and try to just be more aware of how much we are scraping food waste into our garbage or our compost bins. That's it for our episode. As with all of our episodes, we curate websites and articles and papers for you to learn more about this topic, as well as educator guides to help teachers introduce this content in the classroom. Both can be found on our website, tilclimate.mit.edu. Just go to the episode page. Thanks again to Dr. Cynthia Rosenzweig for joining us, and thank you for listening.